Good evening, church. If you have your Bibles with you tonight and hope that you do, would you go with me to the book of 1 Peter? The book of 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter number 1. 1 Peter and chapter number 1. We have a beautiful text here before us this evening. So we're just going to jump right in, start unpacking this thing, see what the Lord has for us. As you're turning there, just to give you a little bit of context into the book of 1 Peter. Peter is the author, as you could probably guess from the name of the letter. Peter is writing to Christians that have been dispersed. Uh, There is statewide persecution taking place, ordered by the government. These Christians know that their faith will cost them their lives, and because of this, they're scattered. And so Peter is addressing these Christians that are scattered throughout what's now Turkey uh, in, in this world that Peter is in. So as you can imagine, there's many pressing concerns that Peter could address. How do you handle state persecution? There's many things that Peter could talk about. There's a lot of bad that Peter could talk about, right? We're really good at talking about the bad of government circumstances. And if Peter wanted to, this is about as bad as government circumstances could get. These scattered Christians would gladly take high gas prices over not being able to profess their Christianity. But Peter actually drops a hope bomb on them. There's many pressing concerns that Peter can address, but he chooses to remind these saints of the beauty of their salvation. I want to be clear about my intentions here tonight. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want this to encourage you with what you already have. I want to help you dive deeper into what you have in the gospel. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ tonight, I never want to take for granted that I speak to people who all know Jesus Christ intimately as their Savior. If you do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, this hope does not apply to you, but tonight can be the night that all of this hope, this gospel bomb Peter drops on us can apply to you. Let's jump right in. First Peter chapter number one, verse number one, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Now, I just want to pause here quickly. Verses 3 through 12. Now, our English translators help us out a lot here. There's punctuation. There's sentence breaks. In the original language, the Greek language, verses 3 through 12 is one big sentence. So forget buying a vow for Peter, it's due by a period. And, and as I read this, and as you read it here with me, I almost picture Peter just being so worked up over how great his salvation is that he just cannot take a breath. He cannot stop. Uh, I, I don't know if uh, any of you guys have ever been to a Brazilian steakhouse. We have one here in uh, Chattanooga called Rodizio. But the way a Brazilian steakhouse works, it's a beautiful thing. And if you're a man in here, I mean, this is revolutionary for your life. So you walk into this Brazilian steakhouse and they give you this cube. There's a red side and there's a green side. And, and I know when I say this, some of you men are going to be like, this cannot be real life. Like, this is a thing. This is a thing. So you walk in the restaurant, they give you this cube. And here's the rules. These are the only rules. If your cube is on red, the gentleman will not bring meat to you. They have all these different cuts of steak and I'm feeling spiritual right now. Right. But if your cube is on green, they're just going to keep bringing meat to you. And that's one of the most powerful feelings I've ever experienced when I'm just sitting here at this restaurant. Green. Like, it's all green, baby. Just just keep it coming. 
It's, and by the way, you can get a free meal on your birthday if you sign up. Some of you, that's going to be the only thing you take from the sermon today. Free, free, free birthday meal at Rodizio. You're welcome for that. You can leave with something tonight. Now. But as I read this, this is what I picture Peter doing. It's like Peter, just, just keep the good news coming. It's like Peter is just serving us another layer of the beauty of our salvation. And I'm hoping tonight that as Peter, this may be grammatically ugly, but it's theologically beautiful. And I hope that by the end of the message tonight, we will share our enthusiasm about our salvation as Peter does as he writes these. So verse number three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith and to salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That's the idea of various trials. Verse number seven, that the trial of your faith, you see it there again, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love. And whom, though now you see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm reminded of what the psalmist has said. If your word had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Lord, I believe that you've laid before us a beautiful text tonight, and I pray that, Lord, we would truly delight in this. Lord, I don't know the circumstances in the room tonight, but I assume, Lord, every time I come to church that there's always a heavy heart. Lord, there's always trials that people are facing, and, Lord, I believe that this passage you've laid before us will help us get a heavenly view of our earthly trials And so, Lord, I pray that you'd be with us for this short time as we unpack this text, that your Holy Spirit would do the work that only he could do and reveal Christ through his word. Lord, challenge us, help us. And then, Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, we would truly be in a spirit of spirit-filled worship as we yet again praise you for the gospel work of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his beautiful name we do pray. Amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, excuse me, was a pastor and theologian during the reign of Adolf Hitler and the rise of his Nazi regime. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was an evangelical Christian pastor, and he believed that the two biggest problems with Adolf Hitler's regime in Nazi Germany was that it was a false view of the biblical idea of justice, He believed that the Nazi movement was a complete movement of injustice and he believed that his religious freedom would be stripped away in this regime of Adolf Hitler. Needless to say, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right, but unfortunately he was one of the only few Christians and only really the only public pastor figure in Germany that 
saw the future of what this regime would cost. His faith in Christ would cost him being imprisoned, knowing that after his short time in prison, he would be executed. Actually, his biographer records that the day before Dietrich Bonhoeffer was to be executed, he was allowed to lead a worship service for his fellow prisoners. He took as his text 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 3. And he began to preach to his fellow prisoners of this lively hope that he had in Jesus Christ. This would be the last sermon that he'd ever preach. The next day, as the executioner came to tell him that his time would come, he would look over at his cellmate and say, To you this may look like the end, but for me it is only the beginning. Dietrich Bonhoeffer faced his most hopeless day. Death was imminent. There was no escape from it. His time on earth had come. He, no doubt, this is a hopeless situation. And yet he mounts a pulpit in his jail cell to preach to others of the lively hope that he had as he would face his execution. And so this begs the question, what kind of hope is this that Dietrich Bonhoeffer had that he could preach of it Moments before his death, I believe here in first Peter chapter one, the text that he chooses as his last sermon, I believe we discover this hope that he had and Christian spoiler alert. If you know Jesus Christ as your savior, this same lively hope that propelled him to preach Christ on his dying day is the same hope living within you. Let's dive in to our text I know you're going to think, well, we're not getting very far because we're going to take a pause on the first word. Verse number one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand that obviously the Holy Spirit is the author of this letter, but the human pinion Peter knows a little bit about the mercy of Jesus Christ. If you know anything about the life of Peter, you know that Peter, he, he, he made a huge offense against Jesus. He denied Jesus three times and in fact so vehemently denied Jesus that he was Cussing out the people who accused him of knowing Jesus. That's a pretty big offense. And yet we know the story of Peter does not end there. He's restored and he's greatly used. In fact, in the book of Acts, it is Peter's sermon which propels the Holy Spirit movement that would start this Pentecostal power in the book of Acts chapter 2. I love this passage of scripture in Luke chapter 22 and this has been a life-changing passage of scripture for me personally. Jesus actually says to Peter in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, And the Lord said unto Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, that thy faith fail not. And I want you to catch this. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. First Peter is only one of the many ways that Peter would overcome his struggle, that he would be restored and begin to strengthen his brethren. May I encourage you tonight that God uses restored failures. God uses a broken heart. God uses a broken life. God is in the restoring business and God is, Jesus is saying to us, I'm praying for you that when you overcome the struggle you are facing now, that you will strengthen your brethren. This is exactly what Peter begins to do. I know let's dive into this text. Number one, as we jump into our outline, I want us to see our special position, our special position. So this is unique here. I want us, I want to lay out kind of how Peter addresses this. Peter and apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers. And this word strangers could be translated strangers, alien, pilgrim. 
I'm going to roll with the word exile because it just makes more sense in my outline. So our special position, I want us to understand the, the first element of our position, of our unique identity in this world is that we are exiles. Now there's a big picture here, right? Peter is addressing literal exiles that are fleeing government persecution, but that's small picture. Peter is also addressing all of us who profess Christ. We are all strangers. We are all exiles in this world, right? This world is not our home. Now, I want us to understand that as exiles, with being an exile, we're going to have all of the struggles that an exile would face. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I do have a layer of hope for my bad news, so just stay tuned, right? But with exiles means that struggles, trials, persecution will come. Because we're not just strangers in a foreign land, we're strangers in a foreign land that has been corrupted and destroyed by sin. So Peter assumes that trials are abundant in Christians' life. Sadly, there is a false brand of Christianity today that will tell you that when you come to Christ, you get wealth, health, and prosperity. But unfortunately, the Bible is very consistent that because we live in a sin-corrupted world, suffering is par for the course 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 actually says this, and this is important for us to understand as we move forward. For even here unto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Now, Peter's not saying follow in his steps as in be like Jesus. He's saying, no, follow in his steps as in because Jesus suffered, you will suffer. Because you are an exile in a sin-corrupted world, you will suffer. It's important for us to understand that before Jesus Christ received his crown of glory, he received a crown of suffering. May I say to you that it's the same pattern for us. We will suffer. We will struggle because we are strangers in a foreign land. But Christian, our crown of glory is coming. So our special position, number one, yes, we are exiles. Okay, that, that's the bad news. We are exiles. But number two, we are not just exiles. We are Elect. So, so get this. We are, we are elect exiles. There's a beautiful irony here. Notice how Peter starts verse number two. Elect. Now, now I know that word and the word election makes us uncomfortable. There's been hundreds of years on debate on the doctrine of election. I'm not here to solve that debate tonight. If I could oversimplify what Peter is saying when he says elect, that just means those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Right? If, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are elect. And no matter where you line up on the issue of election, there's, there's no debate there. If you are in Christ, you are elect. So Peter says, yes, you are exiles. You are strangers in a foreign land. You do have trials and struggles coming, but your identity is bigger than that. You are elect. Furthermore, Peter says in chapter 2, verse number 9, to add to this idea of being elect, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who have called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Christian, what is your identity tonight? You're an elect exile. Sure, you are an exile, but you're more than that. Your identity is rooted in what Jesus Christ has done for you. I want to be very clear here tonight. Your identity is not what your critics say about you. Your identity is not your past. Your identity is not the lies that Satan tells you. Your identity is not your perception on social media. If you are in Christ, this is your identity. You are an elect 
loved, chosen child of God. Christian, that is who you are. Stop letting trials define you. Stop letting Satan define you. Stop letting your past define you. And stop letting critics define you. Who are you tonight? You are elect. You are a loved, chosen child of God. And this is going to propel us through the rest of our text. If we understand that, do we have the faith to believe that we really are who God says we are? Or do we think we need to keep doing more to gain his approval? No. God's already told you you are loved. God's already told you you are chosen. So choose what Christ says about you over your self-righteousness. This is who you are. Now jumping into that, let's talk about our secured privileges. Our secured privileges. Because we are elect, because we are a royal priesthood and holy generation of peculiar people, etc., etc., loved and accepted child of God. Because we are these things, what are, let's say, the perks that come with this salvation promise? So our secured privileges. Number one is regeneration. Verse number three, Bonhoeffer's text. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now you're in exile, you've been born into sin, you've been born into corruption on this earth, but when you come to Christ as, and accept Him as your Savior, you are given a new life. You are literally born again. Jesus Christ regenerates you into what Peter says, now everything you know in your physical birth is death, right? Sin brings death. Everything you know in this land as exiles is death, but Christ has, you've been born again so that now you have a living, a lively hope. What Jesus Christ has done for you gives you an eternal hope that shall not fade away. Christian, this is who you are. You've been born again. You have a new birth. You have a new identity. You're more than just an exile. No, you've been reborn into a living hope, right? You're more than your circumstances. Why? Because you have a hope beyond your circumstances. You've been regenerated. Verse number four, as we talk about the next perk, privilege of our salvation, it's an inheritance. Verse number four, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. The message here is that God is keeping heaven for us. And I know we say that word, but I want us to truly think about the beauty of what heaven is. And my challenge here tonight is that you would not just know about heaven like a head knowledge, but that the idea of heaven would affect your heart. Right. Peter does not want these elect exiles to just have a head knowledge of heaven. He wants the knowledge of heaven to affect their heart. A knowledge of heaven propels you through temporary earthly trials. And I love this little callback that Peter gives to inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. This is a this is a callback to the Old Testament. The the promised land was defiled. It was corruptible. But Peter is speaking to these people saying this land is undefiled it's without corruption it fadeth not away it is eternal if i if i could encourage you with this church the trial that you face now and we're going to get more into trials as we progress through the message but i i know that trials are real and i know that they're hard and i seem and i know that many times they seem like they are never ending but if i can make this promise to you that peter is reminding us of i promise you that when you've been seven billion years In heaven, with Christ, your trial will seem short. When you've spent billions of years at the dinner table with your Savior, your trial now 
will seem short. Notice what Hebrews chapter 11 says. Of course, you guys know your Bible. You're scholars out there. You know, this is the hall of faith. This is what's said of many of these that were in the hall of faith. These all died in faith, not received, not receiving the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. So Christian, next time you sing a song about heaven, let it affect your heart and not just your head. Right? Next time you hear a message on heaven and you're reminded of eternity, let that affect your heart and not just your head. Let the thought of heaven propel you through your temporary earthly trial. So we see here our inheritance that God is keeping heaven for us. But the next perk, the next, per, yeah, the next perk of our salvation is protection. Protection. Notice what verse number five says. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So I want you to see the significance of this. Verse 4, Peter is saying that God is keeping heaven for you. In verse 5, Peter is saying God is keeping you for heaven. Now we like this term. Once saved, always saved. That's a good term. But under that term, there's a foundation that's actually a very important theological doctrine that we call eternal security. This is an eternal security promise here in verse number five, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Peter is very plain here. This is a gift that we've been given that we will not and cannot lose. We believe that Jesus Christ did not just do enough to purchase our salvation, but he did enough to protect our salvation. And I want you to think about this, right? If Jesus Christ died and we didn't... We didn't do enough to gain salvation. What makes us think we can then do enough to keep salvation? Peter's clear here. There's one person keeping your salvation. This is your insurance policy. Who are kept by the power of God. Look, God, I, I don't, there's, not a, there's not a better power out there. right? There's not a better insurance company out there. Some of you may have good insurance through your jobs. But I promise you it does not match the power of God. And Peter's saying that your salvation is protected by the greatest power known to man. Maybe some of you in here tonight are saying, Clay, I just feel like I can't hold on. Well, the good news is that God holds you. You just feel like I can't go on. Well, the good news is that Christ carries you. Clay, I feel defeated, but in Christ you have victory. He's protecting you. He's carrying you. Right? You have an insurance that is the very power of God himself. <laughs> what a beautiful promise here, church. All right, let's look at this next one. I'm going to try to be quick, but yet cover everything here. Let's talk about purification. Verse 6 to 7. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations. This temptations is the idea of trials here. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found into the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now I want us to see something here that's, that's kind of weird, but I want us to get it. I think this is important. Peter gives us a very good foundation on how to handle suffering. Notice how he starts verse number six. Wherein 
ye greatly rejoice. What Peter is not saying is, wherein, in this trial, you rejoice. This wherein Peter is talking about is not the trial. The wherein that he's talking about is everything we've talked about from verses 1 to 5. So we do not rejoice because of trials. We rejoice because of our salvation hope. But then he also goes on to say in the same verse, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Let me say something to you that some of you may look at me funny. I already, I'm already kind of expecting that. But as a Christian, you can grieve and rejoice at the same time. This is what Peter is laying out. I think one of, one of the greatest offenses to Christianity is assuming that people should not struggle. Is assuming that people should not feel broken. Is assuming that people should just have enough faith to overcome whatever they are dealing with. I want us to understand something. Grief is a necessary emotion. I want to say something to you that doesn't sound pretty. God's goal for your Christian life is not comfort. It is conformity. And because his goal for you is conformity, there may be a trial come to your life that will make you more like Jesus. So understand that we do not rejoice in trials, right? We're we're not begging God for more trials, but the Bible is clear that we have a hope that is beyond our trials. So may I say to you, Christian, those of you who are bearing things right now and you're coming to church and you continue to perform knowing that you are broken, knowing that you are at wit's end, knowing that you have not prayed in a week and yet you get in a choir loft or you teach a class, stop it. Run to Christ and cast your burden on him. God, listen, God is not pleased with performing through pain. God is not pleased with doing duty when you're in great distress. This is why the Bible, we have commands over and over and over again. In 1 Peter, casting all your care upon him for he careth for you. What does Jesus say to his audience, right? My yoke is easy, my burden light. He's begging his audience, bring your burdens to me. Some of you think that you're a good Christian because you're just doing your duty, but you're broke. You're performing, but you're in pain. And Christ is not seeking for your performance. He's seeking for your dependence. That's what he wants. Listen, our trials remind us that we need Jesus. Church, that's not a bad thing. Your brokenness reminds you that you need Jesus. You always have And you always will. So may I say to you, look, if you're hurt, hurt. That's what Jesus is waiting on. God is waiting to take your hurt. He's waiting to take your pain. And if you don't believe me, look at how Jesus talks to the Pharisees. They they performed. They did everything right, but they didn't have the motive right. And and Jesus calls them snakes and vipers and hypocrites. He's not he's not pleased. With just performing and and putting on a a face and throwing the suit and tie on. No, run to your father. So we we can rejoice and grieve at the same time. Now I want us to to focus in on this purification issue. Notice what Peter says. At the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found to praise and honor the Lord, the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now, this culture would have understood the value of faith a little more than we would because we've advanced so much since this time. But Peter tells them, this is a revolutionary statement. The trial of your faith, although similar to the trial of gold, your faith is much more precious 
than of gold. What does he say here? That gold must be tested by fire? And again, Christian, I hate to tell you this. Your faith must be tested by fire. Again, Christ, God wants conformity to Christ in our life. And I want to ask you a question tonight. Could you be uncomfortable in your life right now because God is waiting for you to find a newfound comfort in him? Could you be going through the fire right now because God is waiting on you to bring that fire to him? Christian, I want us to hear this. Every trial that you go through has a point. Now, I'm not going to say that Christ ordains every trial and that he predestines every trial and that every trial is his fault. I'm not going to say that. But what I will say based on Scripture is that he will purify you through every trial. And so the message here is don't waste a trial. If I can say this as lovingly as I know how, church, I do not want anyone in here to experience great trials. In fact, I dread that for you. None of us want to face trials. Again, we don't rejoice in the trial. We rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ. But what I, what I really dread for you is that you go through a trial and miss what Christ is trying to do in your heart. What I really dread for you is that you go, go through a trial and think it's pointless. What I really dread for you is that you go through a trial and you don't lean on Christ. And you miss the beauty of finding a newfound dependence upon him. Christian, your trials are not pointless. And then next here, affection. This is is the big point. Notice what Peter says in verse number 8. Whom having not seen, ye love. Now it's interesting to me how Peter orders his kind of list of privileges, if you will. He talks about trials, and then at the end of trials, he makes the assumption that Christians, who come through their trials, love Jesus. If I could say this to you, the only motivation high enough to bring you through your trials is love for Jesus. Being a perfect Christian on paper, being a better Christian than those around you, being faithful to church, giving the most in the offering plate, being faithful in services, serving in ministry at any capacity. Hear me, those things are all good, but none of those things will bring you through the trials that you face. The only thing that will bring you through is this fundamental question, do you love Him? Do you love Jesus? And by the way, you could know everything about Jesus. You could have a deep theology that's proper and still not love Jesus, do you love him? If you were to lose everything as part of your purification process, could you still say, I love him? So many times we complicate Christianity, but what is a Christian? Let's let's just keep it simple. What is a Christian? We love Jesus. The Holy Spirit has put within us an affection for Jesus. He is the object of our affection. Do you love him? People who love Jesus will suffer because he suffered for us. So if your motivation is anything lower than love for Christ, may you repent of that and ask the Holy Spirit to give you a newfound affection for Christ. And this issue of purification and affection, 
The hymn, How Firm a Foundation, written by John Rippon. This was the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle before Spurgeon. You guys know I had to get a Spurgeon reference in here somewhere. Verse number four, he says this. And we're going to sing this at the conclusion of the message together. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Christian, don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. All right, let's finish. Number three, last point, our significant promise. So Peter has been talking of these privileges, and now this is going to be the cherry on top. He's, Peter's saying, in case you haven't got the point of how great your salvation is, here's the cherry, whipped cream, sprinkles, whatever you like on top, okay? All right, number one, why this is significant? Because the prophets foretold it. Verse number 10, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Now that's interesting. Notice what Peter says. These prophets of the Old Testament, they're prophesying of a Messiah. They are prophesying of a salvation that you experienced. So basically what Peter's saying here, that the Old Testament prophets... In speaking of the salvation that was to come in the New Testament, they spread the table, they set the table, they put the meal out, and we're the ones that feasted on it. We're the ones that experienced this salvation that they did not fully comprehend. Now listen, the prophets were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they did not fully comprehend everything that the Holy Spirit was telling them to write. They did not have a New Testament perspective. And I want us to see this, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But I want us to also see what's said here. This is this is beautiful to think of. Second Peter 219. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Christians, if I could say this to you, you are living in a very privileged time in Christian history. We're not sacrificing lambs. We're not having Passover feasts. We have experienced a new kind of grace that these prophets longed to see. And it's your every day. The prophets longed to look upon your Monday. Think about that. The prophets longed to understand the grace you have on a Monday. All right, so the prophets foretold it. All right, the Holy Spirit reveals it. Now, I know we just came through missions conference. I get that. I don't want to take away anything from that, but I want to be clear here. The act of accomplishing salvation has always been the Holy Spirit's job. So when you receive Christ into your heart, it was because the Holy Spirit worked in your heart. We fully depend on the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we, we a lot of times have this false misunderstanding that the Holy Spirit showed up on the scene in Acts chapter 2, and that's when he began to work. But Peter is clear here. No, the Holy Spirit has always been revealing Christ. He's telling the Old Testament prophets to write of a Christ they did not know. So the Holy Spirit has always been active in revealing who Christ is and what he has done. So I want us to see here that this salvation, this great promise that we've been given, the whole Trinity is involved in it, right? God lays the blueprint. Jesus Christ accomplishes that blueprint. And the Holy Spirit has always been revealing what Christ has done done. This is beautiful. right? The prophets have foretold of it, but the Holy Spirit has been revealing it. What do I want you to say? I want you to see that what you have is significant. It matters. It's important. And then number three, this is kind of mind-boggling. 
the angels marvel at it. There's this small little phrase at the very end of our text that's small but profound. Which things the angels desire to look into. Now, these Greek words at the end here, this desire, this is a longing. This is a straining. So, it, so literally the picture here is that these angels are straining to see this salvation. And the word look into is actually, it literally means to look in from without. It's the same word that was used when Jesus' followers went to his tomb. They were looking in to a tomb that was without Jesus. What's the point here? These angels do not know what it means to experience the grace and mercy in Christ through salvation. Now they saw it all, but they were only spectators. Think about this. The angels announced Christ's birth to the shepherds. They see him live a sinless life. It tells us that they were at the tomb. It was the angels who rolled the stone away. It was an angel who announced to Jesus' followers, he is not here, he is risen. The angels have seen all these glorious things, but there's something that they just cannot stop looking into. There's something that they just cannot stop marveling about. And what is it? It's what you have, church. They wish they could understand the depth of love God has in redeeming undeserving sinners. They marvel at it. If I can close in this way, there's many things that we get troubled about, that we get concerned about, that the angels can care less about. But this promise of salvation that we have this grace and mercy that we have received in Christ, these divine eternal beings cannot wrap their mind around it. You say, Clay, that's beautiful. It is beautiful. But better than that, if you know Christ, this is what you have. And so let's praise him for the firm foundation he has given us. Dear Father, we just want to thank you again. Lord, I pray that you'd help us, Lord. The the gospel, our salvation, is not just a ticket into heaven. It's not just forgiveness of sins. Lord, it's that, but it's so much more. Lord, it's it's the well that we should dig from every day of our lives. Lord, we've been privileged. Lord, we've been saved as undeserving sinners. We've experienced a grace, as Peter says, that is unspeakable and full of glory. Lord, the angels right now are marveling and straining to know more about what we have. So, Lord, help us to rest in the fact that our greatest problem has already been solved. Lord, this is a prayer for me as well as everyone in the audience here tonight. Lord, I pray that no matter what everyone is going through, that we would not be defeated by our trials, that we would stand fast in our love and in our affection for your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we do pray. Amen. Take your hymn books. Turn to page 380, please. 380. Let's everyone stand together. And let's sing this hymn, How Firm a Foundation, after hearing that message. Listen to the words you sing. Let them be true in your heart tonight. And we'll sing all five verses.
there's something here that's real that we can give to them. If you're saved tonight, as Brother Clay pre preached to us tonight and showed us in the Word of God, our salvation is real. He's given it to us. And it's real. Because the Holy Spirit's real. Real. So let's do that. Be back here on Wednesday night. Be in our places. Pray one for another. Pray for pastor. He's going up to help ministries to, tomorrow for a meeting there and so forth Monday and Tuesday. He's going to take about 10 suits that Donna's dad had. Give to those missionaries. Thankful for that. So let's pray one for another. Keep right with it. And God will bless us. I know he will. Father, thank you for the service tonight. Thank you for the message and thank you for the messenger. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for what you've shown to us tonight through the Word of God. Now, Lord, help us not to take it for granted. Help us to use it in a mighty way this week. Bring us back here at the next appointed time this Wednesday, I pray. Keep everyone safe. Be with each person. Be with our pastor as he travels tomorrow. Bless him. Help him. Lord God, all of us, we'll thank thee for it in your precious name. Amen. God bless you.